This podcast is part of the Deluxe Edition Network. To find other great shows on the network, head over to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. That's deluxeeditionnetwork.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Stephen Jarvis and Friends podcast. Today, we are talking about the history of the New York Jets, and this is the history of the New York Jets, episode one, the origins of the team. Also, before we get into there, thank you also so much for the amazing support that you show this podcast and all the podcasts on the Deluxe Edition Network, which you can go and watch on the deluxeeditionnetwork.com, the podcast of the month, which are barrel-aged flicks and history I'd like to fuck with Don Brody. And also, to anyone that's out there that listens to this podcast, I do want to say this, viewer discretion is advised. If any kids are, if adults, if you're letting your kids watch this podcast, just know I do swear a little bit. Um, so sorry about that. Also, go check out the Denny's on the deluxeeditionnetwork.com where you'll be able to vote for any category you want to picked by us, the podcasters on there. But you have the voting power to make the podcaster of the year or your favorite categories. Thank you so very much, and I hope you enjoy this episode. So as I said earlier, this is... History of the New York Jets, Episode 1, Origins. In 1959, young oilman Lamar Hunt and Bud Adams sought a NFL or National Football League franchise. They found out that NFL expansion required a unanimous vote of existing team owners, so there was little likelihood of convincing the NFL to expand. The two men attempted to acquired the Chicago Cardinals intending to move the franchise to Dallas where there was no NFL team. Cardinals co-owner Walter Wolfner, who owned the team with his wife, Violet Bidwell Wolfner, was unable to sell majority control, was unwilling, sorry, to sell majority control. During the discussions, Walter Wolfner mentioned the names of other wealthy bidders seeking to acquire the Cardinals. On the flight home, Hunt and Adams decide to recruit the other bidders as owners of teams in the new professional football league. New York City attorney William Shea was attempting to create the Continental League, a rival league to Major League Baseball. Hunt met with him, and Shea suggested Harry Wismer, a former sportscaster who had been a minority shareholder in both the Washington Redskins now known as the Washington Commanders, and Detroit Lions. As a potential New York franchise owner for the new football league, Wismer was willing. He was feuding at the time with the Redskins' principal owner, George Preston Marshall, and realized he would never own the Washington franchise. Wismer, while wealthy, was not nearly as rich as the other potential team owners. On August 14, 1959, the league held an, an organizational meeting and announced its plans. Eight days later, it announced its name, the American Football League, or the AFL, the fourth league to take that name. Among the charter members was a New York franchise owned by Wismer, dubbed the Titans of New York. 
On November 24, 1959, the AFL held its first draft. The Titans selected Notre Dame quarterback George Izzo as their first pick. The league announced a policy formulated by Wismer that it would negotiate with the network for a single television contract to cover all the teams, the first league to do so. On December 7th, the Titans hired Steve Sebo as general manager. Sebo had just been fired as coach of the University of Pennsylvania, despite taking the Quakers to the Ivy League championship. On December 17th, the Titans announced at a press conference that one of the biggest names in the history of football would soon be named as their head coach. Although Wismer was prone to hyperbole, in this case, he told the truth. New York had persuaded former Redskins star quarterback and punter Sammy Baugh to be its coach. Since his retirement as a player, Baugh had coached at tiny Hardin-Simons University, where he built a strong football program that sent a team to the 1958 Sun Bowl. Before appearing at the press conference, Baugh demanded his entire salary of $20,000 for 1960 in cash. The Titans accommodated him. Wismer sought a place for his team to play, but was only able to secure the decrepit polo grounds, which had been without a major tenant since the departure of the New York football Giants baseball team in 1957. The stadium stood on the northern tip of Manhattan across the Harlem River from Yankee Stadium, where the New York Giants NFL team played. Baugh invited some 100 players to the Titans' first training camp, which opened at the University of New Hampshire on July 9th, 1960. As NFL teams cut players from their training camps, many were invited to the Titans or any or other AFL training camps as the team sought to fill their 35-man rosters. The franchise's first preseason game took place on August 6, 1960 against the Los Angeles Chargers at El Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. The Titans kicked off to begin the game and Chargers running back Paul Lowe returned the kick 105 yards for a touchdown. New York lost 27-7. On September 11th, 1960, the opening regular season game was played in a heavy downpour. The remains of Hurricane Diana, water poured off Coogan's Bluff, situated above the polo grounds, swamping the field, which had poor drainage. The Titans' offense was less affected by the mud than that of the visiting Buffalo Bills. The Titans won the game 27-3 before a crowd of 9,607, with paid attendance being at 5,727. The following week, New York played another home game against the Boston Patriots. On the first of many occasions when the team would lose a game after taking a big lead, the Titans were ahead 24-7 in the second half with the lead reduced to 24-21, the Titans punted from deep in their own territory, territory with seconds left. The punter, Rick Spenza, fumbled the snap and the Patriots recovered in the end zone for the victory. The following week, with the Titans playing at the Denver Broncos, New York blocked a punt on the final play to win the game. In their fourth game, New York had a two-point lead when it fumbled with 15 seconds left against the Dallas Texans, now known as the Kansas City Chiefs. This set off a scramble for the ball, which the Titans recovered as time ran out. Viewers in New York were spared the harrowing ending. 
In a prelude to the Heidi game eight years later, the local ABC station had switched to a Walt Disney Davy Crockett special at 6.30 p.m. Many viewers called the complaint. Five weeks into the season, guard Howard Glenn broke his neck during a loss to the Houston Oilers, now known as the Tennessee Titans, and died a few hours later, becoming the first player in professional football to die from injuries sustained on the field. New York suffered other injuries as the season progressed, and Wismer lacked the money to replace the injured players. Several players had to play both offense and defense. Wismer had arranged for the Titans to play three home games before their crosstown river rivals, the Giants, started their season. This meant the Titans had to play their final three games on the road, and Wismer claimed to have lost $150,000 on the trip. The Titans finished their first season 7-7. Seven seven. According to attendance figures released by the team, the Titans drew an average of 16,375 fans per game. This claim was mocked by the New York press, which reported that the fans had disguised themselves as empty seats. The New York Times estimated that the team had lost $450,000 for the season. In his autobiography, Wismer set the figure at $1.2 million. Bankruptcy and Recovery New York City had proposed to build a new stadium for its franchise in baseball's stillborn Continental League. When, the league, when that league dissolved and the city was awarded a franchise dubbed the New York Mets in the National Football League, or in the National League, sorry, plans for a stadium continued. Wismer had hoped the Titans would could play in the new stadium to be built at Flushing Meadows in Queens, beginning with the 1961 season. But funding difficulties and legal problems delayed construction. Wismer signed a memorandum of understanding in late 1961, although he was unhappy about the terms, which gave the Mets exclusive use of the stadium until they completed their season and gave the Titans no revenue from parking. According to team doctor James Nicholas, the lease that Harry signed cost the team quite a lot. It led to later team owner Leon Hess going to Meadowlands. Shea Stadium, as it came to be known, did not open until 1964. New York hoped to improve its fortunes through the AFL draft, but most Titans draftees signed with the NFL. The Titans won only one preseason game before a crowd of 73,916 against the Patriots in Philadelphia. Free tickets have been given to anyone who bought $10 in groceries at an Acme market. The New York Times columnist Howard Tuckner described the crowd as presumably well-fed. The 1961 season, which ended at 7-7, seven and seven, was marked by financial difficulties as the paychecks of many players bounced. Team members learned to hurry to the bank as soon as they received their pay. At the end of the season, Harry Wism- Wismer announced that Clyde Bulldog Turner would be the Titans head coach in 1962. Ba had a contract for 1962 and would have to be paid unless he quit. Although Wismer did not fire Ba. He also did not tell him where the team's 1962 training camp would be. Boss showed up anyway and spent several days acting as kicking coach before Wismer came to the conclusion that Baugh would not quit. The team owner finally agreed to pay the coach his salary in monthly installments, although Baugh later stated that he was never paid. Baugh's 14-14 record stood as the best mark by any Titans slash Jets coach until bettered by Bill Parcells in 1997 through 1999. 
In the offseason, Wismer hoped to bring a star to the Polo Grounds by drafting Heisman Trophy winner Ernie Davis of Syracuse, but Davis was drafted by the Redskins instead, traded to the Browns, and died of leukemia before ever playing a professional game. Turner had never been a head coach before. He faced a team convinced that Baugh had been treated shabbily by Wismer and had difficulty uniting the players. After the Titans split their first two games against Oakland and the Chargers, who had moved to San Diego, the team came home to no paychecks. The players refused to practice, though they worked out on their own on Friday. Then they flew to Buffalo and defeated the winless Bills. Public attention in New York was focused on the established local teams as well as the abysmal record of the fledgling, fledgling Mets, who nevertheless, nevertheless attracted a cult following. Titans received little publicity and attracted only 4,719 fans to the home opener against Denver. They were required to wait until the end of the Mets season before they were allowed to use the polo grounds. The Broncos defeated the Titans 32-10 and Titans quarterback Dean Look suffered a career-ending injury. New York's final financial and football woes continued through October 1962, and at the beginning of November, Wismer informed AFL Commissioner Joe Foss that he lacked the money to continue operations. The league assumed the cost of running the team for the rest of 1962. Wismer remained in nor- nominal charge. The Titans had little ex- success on the field. The highlight was... A uh, 46-45 victory at favored Denver on Thanksgiving and finished the season insolent, insolvent with a 5-9 and nine record. Wismer agreed to sell the team but attempted to prevent the sale with the bankruptcy filing. He contended that the move into Shea Stadium would lead to sufficient revenue to make the team profitable. A bankruptcy referee granted the league the authority to sell the team to a five-man syndicate composed of David A. Sonny Warblin, Townsend B. Martin, Leon Hess, Donald C. Lillis, and Philip H. Inselin. The sale of the team was approved by a court of Mar- on March 15th and completed on March 28, 1963. The sale price was $1 million. On April 15, 1963, the team named Wilbur Weeb Eubank as their head coach and general manager. Eubank had won back-to-back NFL championships in 1958 and 1959 with the Baltimore Colts and was one of the most respected coaches in the game. The Colts had fired Eubank in favor of Don Shula, an untested 33-year-old. Werblin had announced a new name for his team, the Jets, which had been selected from among 500 candidates submitted by friends, enemies, and advertising agencies. The name was chosen over Dodgers, Burroughs, and Gotham's. The team's colors were changed to green and white. In a press release, the team stated the reason for the selections. The sites, the site of the new stadium between New York's two major airports, symbols of the speedy modern age, influenced the selection of the New York name Jets. It reflects the spirit of these times and uh, the eagerness of all concerned. Players, coaches, and owners to give New York another worthy name. The new team's colors of green and white were chosen for much the same reasons, plus the fact that down through the ages, green has always signified hope, freshness, and high spirits. 
The new owners faced a chaotic situation. The team had few players under contract and had little, made little effort to sign any of their draft picks, most of which had signed with the NFL. The league attempted to strengthen the Jets and the woeful Oakland Raiders by allowing them to select players from the other six teams. And by giving them the opportunity to sign players cut from NFL rosters, Eubank, who had discovered Colts great Johnny Unitas at an open tryout, held tryouts for the Jets. Only seven of the participants were invited to training camp, and one, Marshall Starks, made the team as a second teamer. In mid-July, it was announced that the Jets could not move into Shea Stadium until 1964. Despite the off-season problems, New York contended for its first divisional title in a weak AFL West-East during the 1963 season. By early December, the Jets had compiled a record of 5-5-1 and faced a game in Buffalo with the Bills only a half game ahead. The Jets lost the game 45-14 as well as their other two remaining games and finished 5-8-1. Although the Jets drew just over 100,000 fans to the polo grounds in seven home games, they quickly sold 17,500 season tickets for the first season in Shea Stadium. The game against the Bills on December 14th was the last sporting event to take place at the Polo Grounds before its demolition in 1964. Running back Matt Snell was drafted by both New York teams, and the Jets were able to sign him. On September... On September 12th, 1964, New York played its first home game, home opener at Shea Stadium, defeating... Denver 30 to 6 before a crowd of 52,663, which broke the AFL regular season attendance record by almost 20,000. On November 8, 1964, both the Jets and Giants played home games. Both teams sold out their games, and the Jets drew 61,929 fans. The Jets posted a home record of 5-1-1 in 1964, but lost all seven road games to finish 5-8-1 again. As the season concluded, the obvious standout draft choice for both leagues was Alabama quarterback Joe Namath. The Houston Oilers in last place in the AFL East had the number one pick for the AFL, but both the Oilers and Jets realized that the Jets had a far better chance of signing Namath in competition with the NFL team which drafted him. As it turned out, the St. Louis Cardinals, formerly the Chicago Cardinals, and the Jets were able to acquire the number one pick. Neither the Jets nor the Cardinals could sign Namath until Alabama played its final game of the season, the Orange Bowl, on January 1st, 1965. Both the Jets and Cardinals negotiated with the Namath's attorney, and when the price got too high for the Cardinals, the Giants secretly acquired Namath's NFL rights. Longtime coach, Jets coach, Walt Michaels admitted many years later that the Jets had signed Namath days before the game. On January 2nd, 1965, the Jets held a press conference to announce Namath's signing. And that'll be it for episode one of the history of the New York Giants Jets franchise. Um, Next Tuesday, we'll have episode two, which will deal with Broadway Joe Namath leading all the way up to Super Bowl three, and then we'll go from there. Thank you so very much for watching this. If you are new to the channel, please like, subscribe, comment, and hit that notification icon so that you'll never miss another moment of the Stephen Jarvis and Friends podcast on our YouTube channel. And also, if you are returning 
to the channel and are already a subscriber, please tell more people about us. We truly appreciate your love and support, but we can't do it alone. We need more help to make this bigger and better. And also, thank you all for going on different podcasting sites like Buzzsprout, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you can hear this podcast at, and for keeping up that amazing support. We truly 100% appreciate it. And like I said before, if you like this podcast and want to watch other great podcasts, head over to the deluxeeditionnetwork.com where you'll find podcasts a month, Barrel Age Flicks, and History I'd Like to Fuck with Don Brody. Also, you'll find people like Kyle Flett, who runs Flett's Movie and Pop Culture 13. And also go check out some of my best friends at The Talking Shit Show with Mark Bensett Jr. and Brian alum. And Brian, I'm sorry if I get it wrong. I'll pay you five bucks every time I get it wrong. Thank you so very much. Go check out the rest of the podcast and go check out the award show known as The Denny's on the network website. Thank you so very much. I love you all, and I will see you on Tuesday. This podcast is part of the Deluxe Edition Network. To find other great shows on the network, head over to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. That's deluxeeditionnetwork.com. <laughs>